come to you and ask for your blessing on the time we spend in your word. We ask you to nourish our faith and cause us to see Christ freshly and to see that he is worthy of all that it would be to follow him, that his love is better than life itself, and that we could taste this joy that truly belongs to us uh, because of Christ. We pray that you would help us see Christ today, uh, new and fresh, and move toward him again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in Philippians 1, verse 27. This is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. It is completely true and utterly trustworthy. On May 10th, 1915, Woodrow Wilson addressed uh, a small congregation of newly naturalized citizens, immigrants who had taken their oath of citizenship. I want to give you a few highlights of his speech. He said, my urgent advice to you would be not only to always think first of America, but always also to think first of humanity. You do not love humanity if you seek to divide humanity into jealous camps. Humanity can only be welded together or can be welded together only by love, by sympathy, by justice, not by jealousy and hatred. I am sorry for the man who seeks to make personal capital out of the passions of his fellow men. He has lost touch with the ideal of America. For America was created to unite mankind by those passions which lift and not by the passions which separate and debase. It was but an historical accident, no doubt, that this great country was called the United States. Yet I am very thankful that it has that word, united, in its title. The man who seeks to divide man from man, group from group, interest from interest, in this great union, is striking at its very heart. Now, he had more to say, and I may even share a little more here, but he says that your citizenship in America, speaking to newly naturalized citizens, to come to understand that you need to live in union with this new culture. And you can certainly imagine that seems pretty fundamental. If you were to be moved to another country and choose to join as a citizen there, you would be saying, I acknowledge this is my home and want to support it. We ask the same thing if you join the church, is that you would make promises to support the, the union of the church. Some more that he says in the same speech, the example of America must be a special example. The example of America must be the example not merely of peace, because it will not fight, but of peace, because peace is the healing and elevating influence of the world, and strife is not. We cannot exempt you from the strife and heartbreaking burden of the struggle of the day that is common to mankind everywhere. We cannot exempt you from the loads that you must carry. We can only make them light in the spirit in which they are carried. That is the spirit of hope. It is the spirit of liberty. It is the spirit of justice. I think those are pretty good words. We're not going to be able to escape 
no matter what we do, the burdens of the day, but we could carry them together. We can have hope and justice. We can promote peace among us because peace is healing rather than uh, to just try to gain our own way. He's our good advice. And it's a picture of what was thought to be a good citizen in 1915. And the view hasn't changed much. In a more recent naturalization ceremony, Thomas Perez, the current uh, assistant attorney general, said this. As you take your oath today, you will be taking on much more than a new passport and the requirement to serve jury duty. It is not just a privilege, but a grave responsibility to be an American citizen and to make your voice heard. Your participation in our democracy is essential to making it work. The right to participate actively in our democracy is one for which men and women have fought and even given their lives. We owe it to them as well as to ourselves, to our children to stay actively engaged and to vote. And these seem like, again, some more basic ideas of what citizenship is, to participate in the society, to take advantage of your privileges and to hold the responsibilities of seeing that the society advances well. One more. Secretary of Labor Hilda Solace in a, also a recent uh, naturalization ceremony. We're asking you to exercise your new freedoms, to stay informed, respect your neighbors, express yourself, become an active participant in your democracy, and above all else, exercise your right to vote. President John F. Kennedy once famously said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Today, what you can do for your country is contribute your talents. Our economy needs your skills, your ambition, your work ethic. Again, you hear this idea that as a citizen, you're to be a contributor to the society, to promote its welfare, to make your service a part of it. It's an expected responsibility of being a citizen. And there are lots of examples of what folks would think that make for good citizens. And that same question would have come up certainly in Philippi because it's unique history. Philippi was a city in Macedonia and, and just to the west, on a small plot of land just west of the city, in 42 B.C. was a time when Octavian and Mark Anthony led uh, a battle against Cassius and Brutus. Now, those of you who remember your uh, you know, 11th grade Shakespeare, remember that Cassius and Brutus were the conspirators who had uh, Julius Caesar assassinated. And so this battle was a battle for the Roman Republic and who would control it. And Octavian and Mark Antony won that battle. And in celebration of winning the battle and gaining control of the Roman Empire, Octavian, who had become known as Caesar Augustus, made Philippi an official Roman colony uh, of the empire and granted to every person who was there, or at least every free person who was there, citizenship in Rome. Now, that may not sound like much to you, but it was a special gift. In much of the Roman Empire, citizenship was granted only to the elites of cities that were part of the Roman Empire. It was given to those who had something they could give back to Rome and who felt like if they lost their citizenship would lose some special privileges. And so they were motivated to serve Rome by becoming citizens. Well, as a gift and commemoration of the victory, 
all who were in Philippi became citizens. And that was a special pride in the city. And so like we have at our elementary schools, little marks on the wall, little words that are hung that talk about character like honesty and and integrity and courage. If they had schools in Philippi, what would mark them is the word that says behave as citizens of Rome. It was one word. And the words actually in our passage, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy. Now, if you have a, an English Standard Version like I'm reading, you'll see a little tiny superscript one that tells you to look in the margins. And in the margins, you're going to find a translator's note. The translator note says the Greek is only behave as citizens worthy. That's the word they would have taught their children from very young. Behave as citizens worthy of Rome. You're a citizen of Rome. Act like it. Take on the values of Rome and live in concert with those values. Only Paul, when he uses the same phrase that would have been used by lots and lots of people in the city of Philippi, he takes Rome out and he puts in its place only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, I want you to begin to see yourself as those who have been naturalized citizens, who've been brought out of one kingdom and into the kingdom of Jesus. You're not really chiefly part of the Roman Empire anymore. You are chiefly under the empire of King Jesus. You're underneath his gospel. And that becomes the singular influence for your life. And so I want you to live a life that's in concert with your new citizenship. This is who you are. You are a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. By trusting in him, by receiving his grace, you've become his citizen. What would life look like as his citizen? He tells you. This is Paul's address to newly naturalized citizens. He says to you, if you live worthy, you will live together. If you live as good citizens of God's kingdom, you will live together in unity. Again, verse 27. If you live like the gospel, here's the result. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Three ways he says that you're supposed to, to be together or to be unified. One spirit, one mind, side by side. So the, the one spirit, uh, in most of the places in the Bible where we see one spirit, it's capitalized S. Because it's people who are influenced by the Holy Spirit. And here, that might be Paul's intention let all of you be influenced and led by the Spirit to live in, in line with what the Bible teaches. But it's possible that they were using the word spirit to describe kind of the way we would use the word heart. And so the spirit was the center of a person. It was their core of their being. Now, when we say heart, we often mean kind of where your affections lie, what you desire, what you enjoy. But for them, it would have been something perhaps a little more uh, central to who you are. Not just what your affections are and what you desire, but the core values of your life. And so he's, he's saying to the Philippian church, let what you value as the most central, most significant values of all of life be the same. 
Let one purpose dominate them all. And then your mind, in one mind, let your thinking be similar. Let what you think about be similar. Have the same thoughts as one another. And then do it together, side by side. Which has a great picture of just physically being together in whatever this central thing is. What is it? At the end of verse 27, he says, for the faith of the gospel. Let that faith of the gospel be the thing that unites you. You see, what can typically unite people are just common causes. Perhaps you've seen a video of someone dumping water on their head recently. If you're familiar with the internet themes, the, the theme is of, of raising awareness for ALS. And it unites. A great, I mean, who can be against awareness of a disease and contributing uh, to research that would get rid of it? It unites people, at least for a little while, till we lose interest. But what Paul is saying is, I want something that's big enough for you to hang your lives on so that it unites you in every set of circumstances. After all, the chief problem with unity is diversity. You know, we come from such different backgrounds, different tastes. Some of us like country music and some like pop music. And some think everything on the radio is bad. And so we come in with these different tastes and preferences. Uh, you know, it's possible that some in here are big LSU fans and some are big, you know, uh, Auburn fans. Probably not, though. You know, we have our, our different preferences on these things. And, and, and so what we come to talk about is the stuff that kind of sets our heart going, where, where our preferences lie. And what Paul is saying is what you want is the one thing that can really hold you together it won't be your favorite sports team. It won't be the language that you speak. It won't be the songs that you sing. It won't be the way you do entertainment. It will be faith in Jesus. The one thing that's strong enough to support you. I uh, got a chance to go to a, a World Series game. St. Louis Cardinals against the Boston Red Sox. The Cardinals were down two to nothing. And this was the first game in St. Louis. And it was high energy. The Red Sox, had, this was before they'd won a World Series in a long time. So they, they hadn't won. And you just sort of felt like that curse was still in effect. That this would be the game that would show it. And there was lots of life. And I was sitting, really standing, uh, just outside one of the concession stands, prepared to go buy a $15 Coke or whatever it was. And I was watching people who were all happy to be spending lots of money on uh, concessions. And just thrilled to be there. And everyone was wearing red. It was magnificent. And I watched uh, up in front of me this uh, young woman, probably in her 20s. I think there with her boyfriend or, or uh, husband, if they had been married, they hadn't been married long. They couldn't have been. And next to them in line was an older gentleman. Uh, he was probably north of 80. And my guess is this wasn't his first World Series, although it was probably her first. And they struck up a conversation. And having never met each other, they were hugging each other before the conversation was over. Such was the, the unity you could feel in this thing that bonded us together. Now, to cut the story much shorter than it needs to be, uh, the Cardinals lost that game. And everyone, except for the very small percentage that were Boston Red Sox fans, 
walked out of the stadium silent. 60,000 people, nothing more than whispers. What had brought them together had let them down. And what Paul is saying here is there's something that can hold you together that won't let you down. It's, It's big enough to hold you. It's big enough to anchor you together. And you know the cliche of the church that that splits over the color of the carpet or the position of the piano. We don't want things like that that are obviously smaller to become bigger than faith in the gospel. So, But let's make it a little more personal. What about our politics? Would our politics separate us? Would that be something that we hold against other Christians if they view it differently? Or does our common faith in Jesus look bigger than our politics? Let's make it a little more personal. What about when another Christian sins against you and hurts you? Part of us says, you know what? They're not safe. I'm going to keep them at a distance. I'm going to let that sin they've done against me keep me from them. And what I'm really saying is this pain, this sin, it's bigger than our common faith in Jesus. Because our faith in Jesus wasn't big enough to hold us together. Something was bigger than that. And Paul is saying, no, no, listen. There is one thing that's big enough to hold you, and it's bigger than everything else that brings unity to you. And um, I heard a, a pastor doing this, an illustration, and he was talking about another pastor in India. And this pastor in India says he sees all kinds of supernatural events all the time, healings and remarkable things that are happening in his church. It's amazing. And then he says, but you know what? I see the same things happening among the Hindus and the Muslims. It's not the sort of supernatural stuff that I see that that distinguishes us. You know what distinguishes us here in India? Is only Christians will cross social castes. Only Christians will come together in fellowship when they're different genders and they're across these different places in, in the economy. The poorest of the poor fellowshipping with the rich and those who are regarded by the broader culture as bad karma and good karma. Christians alone bridge that gap. It doesn't happen in Hindu and it doesn't happen in Islam. And he said that's the miracle. That's Jesus. Because they see Jesus as bigger than their social castes. Do you see Jesus big enough to give you unity with people who are very different than you? One way to tell it is just this. What do you think of other churches? If you look at other churches and see them see them as, as competitors, as threats to our becoming who we want to be by attracting people here, then you see them as something bigger than Jesus. But if you see other churches who are declaring Christ and worshiping Him and and, and proclaiming Him as salvation, then the thing we ought to do is say, we're on the same team. Let's sing and praise and pray for each other and celebrate the gains of others as we celebrate our own. He calls us to be together. And there's a lot more to say about that, but... It comes back up in Philippians, so I'll say it later. He also says that you're to be courageous or fearless. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. Now, this, I think, touches home right now for us because there's a lot that kind of promotes fear in us and it keeps coming up in the book of Acts and what we studied on Wednesday night in Psalm 2. We hear about this world that is opposed to the gospel and is opposed to God. And if we're on the side with God, we're going to start saying, hey, that makes us in the minority. That makes us the targets because they're not going to be able to shoot at God. They're going to be able to shoot at people who want to follow him. And already in Europe, you're easily marginalized as superstitious and a fool for believing in Jesus. And my guess is you sort of feel that that's coming here. That there's a systematic effort from those who are opposed to Christianity being in the public arena, trying to press it out in any way possible with force, with policy, with whatever means that they can so that you feel more and more isolated. Now, we live in the Bible Belt, and it's not that way yet. And I'm not one to be, I'm by far not an alarmist. But I kind of see it on the horizon, and I anticipate this life for my grandchildren, where they are in the profound minority and look foolish to the rest of the world for believing in Jesus. Just know that's the ordinary way for Christians. That Paul is telling the Philippians, listen, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that because Jesus has already won. He says to us not to be afraid because he's already overcome the world. An illustration of this that I heard a pastor make was about football. And in it, he talked about a game where the local team, let's pretend it was, uh, I can't pick one. Let's pretend it was, uh, we'll go with Mississippi State. Sorry for the Ole Miss fans. Let's say Mississippi State was up by 35 at the end of a game and the the last play of the game, the, the team they were playing, uh, scores a touchdown. You don't now go, oh no, are they coming back? You look at it and you laugh, oh well. That's sort of the way it is to be a Christian. God's already won. Jesus has already overcome the world. He's already raised from the dead. And he's already said, you're participating with me in my death and my resurrection. You're going to live forever. So don't be afraid of what they can do. Don't be afraid of the policies they can pass. Don't be afraid of the power they can wield. And I want you to know that command isn't just for you in the Bible Belt where you're pretty safe gathering together. That's the command for the Christians in Syria and Iraq today who are possibly being beheaded tomorrow. I would like for you to hear Paul say to them, don't be afraid of what they can do. Your God is already one. It's a powerful reminder of who we are. And so tomorrow, when you hear the news of one more victory of a culture that's trying to press down Christianity and you feel it and you say that's one more square foot of my culture that's been given away or taken from us, don't say it with fear. You pray, God, would you take care of us? Uh early Christian apologists were wanting to persuade the Roman emperor that a policy of Christian persecution was unjust. And so they uh, appealed to the emperor and to uh, Marcus Aurelius 
both the, the emperor had, stud, had, had known his study of philosophy and himself was known as wise. And Christian Athenagoras, well, that's hard to say, Athenagoras, uh, made his plea. Here's what he said. Uh, despite the good educations and quick minds of, his, of the philosophers that Marcus Aurelius has known, he said, have any so purified their own hearts as to love their enemies instead of hating them? Instead of upbraiding those who in, first insult them, which is certainly more unusual, but to bless them, to pray for those who plot against them. With us, on the contrary, Christians, you will find unlettered people, tradesmen and old women, who, though unable to express in words the advantages of our teaching, demonstrate by acts the value of their principles. They do not rehearse speeches, but evidence good deeds. When struck, they do not strike back. When robbed, they do not sue. To those who ask, they give, and they love their neighbors as themselves. Not afraid of what might happen to them, they live faithfully in the midst of persecution. The last thing, and I will be very brief, that Paul says, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This verse is one of those that I go, does Paul live in the same world that I do? It's been granted, given to you as a gift that you should suffer for Christ's sake. And I'm like, well, stop giving. But Paul seems to think that it's a badge of honor, that it's a certain good gift that God is giving that you should suffer for Christ's sake. When we were in seminary, one of the things we would often have this conversation was kind of a, I'm so poor. A lot of seminary students struggle to make their ends meet. And we'd always talk about, I'm so poor, here's what I'm having to do. You know, set the uh, heat on 84 during the summer and the air conditioning on 59 in the winter and wear coats all the time. And, you know, we would have the so poor competitions. Now, whether that was humble or not, I don't know. But, but the picture was we sort of wore it as a badge of courage that we're, we're, we're offering a sacrifice in order to follow our calling to Jesus. And, and there's something to that. We might have been distorting it. But there's something to it that's right. That if God calls us to suffer for his sake, that we have to say, but I get to be like Jesus. He suffered for the kingdom of God. He went to the cross and I get to be like him. And that's a gift. And I get to taste the life of Jesus. I get to experience in some way what he did for me. And, and that sounds great to me. That's Paul's idea. And that's how different our minds would change if the gospel became the thing that we united our lives about and upon which we uh, based our current courage. And if the gospel became the chief value of our lives, then even suffering changes its value. It's not that it would be good or pleasant, but only that it would let us taste Jesus and he is good and pleasant. I was at a conference and the conference speaker was talking about uh, how uh, shame and guilt works and you know wanted to say that that if we could change our mindset it would change how we thought about all of life if we saw Jesus as one who suffered and even felt shame then we could even take our shame out and say here look I'm like Jesus because he was shamed on the cross he said that when he was in middle school uh, everybody thought the canvas um, sneakers were uncool 
and only the uncoolest of all would wear them. And so nobody would wear them. Then one day, one of the most popular kids, a you know, football player, well-known, well-liked by everybody, seemed to get them going, came and showed up in school in the you know, canvas sneakers. And you know what happened the next day, right? Everybody had them. Because the, the one cool kid made them cool. Jesus suffered. And he made it cool. Isn't that remarkable? That, it, that Paul became so enamored with Jesus that he said, I don't care what our differences are, we're together. And he became so enamored with Jesus that he said, nothing can scare me anymore. And he became so enamored with Jesus that he said, suffering itself is a gift because I get to, to be like him. If you would take your eyes and set them on Jesus, you will become enamored with him as well. And it will change everything that you think. You'll become a citizen of his kingdom and you will live well there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we would ask you to show us a vision of our great and awesome king so that we could love him the way Paul seemed to capture him and be uh, in love with him. That's what we want. And so would you give us a vision of his kingly glory so that we would say nothing can separate us because we have Jesus and nothing can terrify us. We have the victor, Jesus, and we would even gladly pay suffering for his sake if it would help us know him better. Would you give us these graces? Most notably, would, we, would you help us know Jesus? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.